Well, it's a joy to be back with you guys this morning to gather together for worship on the Lord's Day. I hope you had a great time last week. I listened to the message online. Uh, Alan did a terrific job preaching God's Word. And Bell and I miss being with you. We had a great trip to Wichita, Kansas. We'll be uh, more than happy to share some details about that after our time of worship. But just know how thrilled we are to be back with you today and to continue our time studying the Gospel of John. You'll recall from our previous studies uh, up to this point in John's Gospel, we've, we've looked at the first section of the Gospel of John, which spanned from verse 1 to verse 18 of chapter 1. You'll recall that as I gave you an outline of that portion of the Gospel, we, we saw three powerful arguments for the deity of Christ. Three powerful arguments for the deity of Christ, or for the fact that Jesus is God. In verses 1 to 5, Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1, we saw Jesus as the source of creation. That was the first argument that John gave for Christ's deity. Jesus is the source of creation. Verses 6 to 13 of chapter 1, Jesus is portrayed as the source of salvation. And the third powerful argument that John provides to prove that Jesus is God was found in verses 14 to 18. And in those verses, we saw that Jesus is the source of God's grace. So if you've been tracking with our studies so far in the Gospel of John, if you've been taking notes, verses 1 to 5, Jesus is the source of creation. Verses 6 to 13, Jesus is the source of salvation. And verses 14 to 18 is Jesus is the source of of God's grace. And as I mentioned during our studies of those passages, we find that historically most commentators have noted that the opening 18 verses is the prologue. So in those opening 18 verses, John is setting the stage for how his gospel illustrates Jesus as the Son of God. Remember that thesis statement for this gospel? In John 20, verse 31, the ultimate purpose for why John wrote his gospel is found in that text. So as we go through this gospel in the weeks to come, always remind yourself, okay, how does what we're studying ultimately come back to this this thesis, this purpose for why John wrote his gospel? Let me read that verse for you again, just to remind you of his purpose. John wrote this gospel, why? So that readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they may have life in His name. So everything you're going to read from here on moving forward in conjunction with with what we've already studied, it's all to show that Jesus is God and that through faith in Christ, through believing in Him, you may have life in His name. So section 1, verses 1 to 18, the deity of Christ. Well, over the past two Sundays, as Alan has done a wonderful job teaching these past two Sundays, um, we, we've begun a study into the second section in the Gospel of John. So if, if section one was the prologue or the introduction to show that Jesus is the Son of God, section two, spanning from verse 19 all the way to the end of chapter one, we can label this second section in the following way. The preparation for Jesus' ministry. So verses 1 to 18 is the prologue. Section 2, verses 19 to the end of chapter 1. The preparation for Jesus' ministry. After establishing the deity of Christ in the opening verses of his gospel, John wants to transition into how Jesus was ultimately prepared to carry out everything that he ultimately accomplished in his earthly ministry. As we prepare to pick up where we left off last Sunday, we saw John the Baptist, of course, in the previous two weeks. John the Baptist as the forerunner to Jesus. He he baptized Jesus and he set the stage for Jesus taking over as the, the, the foremost character in this gospel account. As great as John the Baptist was, he was ultimately intended to point to Christ. He was not at the center of God's purposes. He was but a supporting actor, as are we. We've covered that at great length in previous weeks. But let's look now at where we're going to be going today and and Lord willing over the course of our time together next week as well. As we wrap up this second section in John's gospel, we're going to look at verses 35 to 51. And the way that I've gone about structuring our attack or our plan of analyzing these verses is I've broken it down into two parts. And I'll get a little bit more into the outline 
of uh, verses 35 to 51 in just a few moments. But um, as we read Scripture now, as we turn our attention to this, uh, this second half, if you will, of the second section in John's Gospel, I want us to read the totality of verses 35 to 51, but for our purposes today, we're just going to cover verses 35 to 42. So today will be 35 to 42 of chapter 1, and Lord willing, next Sunday we'll look at uh, verses uh, 43 to 51. So let us now turn to the reading of God's Word, as I've done in previous weeks. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Bible, so please feel free to copy along, or follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read the text. And Lord willing, God will bless us as we dive into his word together. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to Jesus, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And this is the word of the living God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. And praise God for the rain. Amen. (laughs) Well, just a few moments ago, we had the privilege of singing one of the most well-known hymns that has ever been produced throughout the course of church history. The year was 1779 when England was first introduced to the captivating lyrics of Amazing Grace, which was written and inspired by John Newton's remarkable conversion to Christianity. Although formerly a slave owner and a staunch proponent of the Atlantic slave trade, Newton's conversion would result in him becoming one of the greatest supporters of the 18th century abolitionist movement in England. It goes without saying that upon repenting of his sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, that John Newton became a fundamentally new creature. And in many ways, the lyrics of Amazing Grace is not only a spiritual autobiography of John Newton's conversion, but it's also a spiritual autobiography and a fitting description for all of us who have come to saving faith in Christ. Amazing Grace is a wonderful testimony of what occurs when a sinner is encountered with the sovereign grace of God. Let me just give you again to consider the opening stanza of that hymn. Think about how precious these words are. If you're in Christ today, these words should be so precious to you. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's impossible to sing those words without 
thinking about what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 to 6, as I was, as I was really contemplating um, how I would try to hook your attention this morning for our study of this passage in John's Gospel and thinking about us singing Amazing Grace together, my mind kept going back to that, that, that powerful truth that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 4. Do you remember those verses? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 to 6. In those verses, we find Paul describing the spiritual blindness of sinful man and how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only remedy to the devastating consequences of our unbelief. Read those verses with me. Just flip over there really quickly. Maybe familiar to many of you here this morning, but perhaps it's new to someone. This is a powerful text that really, I believe, is, is a perfect It is a perfect representation of what Newton is going for, not only in the opening stanza of his hymn, Amazing Grace, but also throughout the totality of the hymn. Paul writes in that passage, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 4 and on to verse 6, he said, The God of this world, referring to Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants on account of, Christ, of Jesus. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. My friends, there is no question that passages such as these resonated deeply with John Newton. Like Paul, Newton understood that man's greatest problem is not physical or temporal. Rather, man's greatest problem is spiritual and eternal. It's for this reason that despite going physically blind at this point in Newton's life, he could still write this masterful hymn granting him uh, that testified to him being granted spiritual sight through faith in Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Even as he was going physically blind, He was losing one of the most precious sense perceptions that's known and enjoyed by all of humanity. Newton was going through a traumatic experience in the late 1770s. And my friends, though he was going blind, though his sight was failing him, he never saw things more clearly. He never had such spiritual clarity in his life prior to his remarkable conversion. You see, as a seeing man, Newton was spiritually blind. But as a blind man, Newton possessed spiritual sight that was 20-20. This is the nature of God's amazing grace. Although born into the world spiritually dead and spiritually blind, sinners are enabled to receive spiritual sight and spiritual life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's with these truths at the forefront of our minds, thinking about what we sang together this morning, thinking about remarkable testimonies such as John Newton, that we come to the passage in the Gospel of John that I want us to consider together today from verse 35 to 42. So how are we going to attack these verses? I mentioned moments ago I was going to give you an outline. Well, for verses 35 to 51, if you want to make a little subheading note under the, the, the macro level heading that is from verse 19 to 51. We said verse 19 to 51, this is the preparation for Jesus' ministry. Okay, so now we're in verses 35 to 51. I've labeled these verses, and I think fittingly so, come and see. Did you hear that refrain over and over and over again in the narrative that we read together? Come and see. My purpose for choosing this particular heading is rooted in the fact that in verses 35 to 51, we see an emphasis on sinful man's desperate need for spiritual sight. By nature, born into this world, You and I are spiritually blind and spiritually dead. We must come and see if we are to be saved. That is a powerful truth communicated throughout the totality of Scripture. And we see remarkable truths reiterated over and over and over again in this portion of John's Gospel. As we work our way through these verses to the end of chapter 1, we're going to find that Jesus Christ is the sole provision for sinners to be cured from their spiritual blindness. In fact, I would argue that as we see this text for what it is, as we interact with it on its own terms, we find six first-hand testimonies from the pen of John 
that Jesus freely extends spiritual sight to all who will commit themselves to following him as Lord and Savior. So in verses 35 to 51, Lord willing, over the next two weeks, we're going to see six firsthand testimonies as to how Jesus provides spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind and spiritually dead by nature. I mentioned today that we're just going to look at the first um, three testimonies as, as they correlate to verses 35 to 42. So today we're just going to look at verses 35 to 42 right down the middle, breaking this chunk of text in half. We're going to look at three testimonies today from those verses. And Lord willing, next week, we're going to look at the second half of this narrative. And we're going to look at the last three testimonies to how Jesus provides spiritual sight to those who are blind and dead by nature. Testimony number one, first testimony we're going to look at today. It's found in verses 35 to 36. And I've decided that the best way to go about summarizing what's going on in that passage is that Jesus is the atonement for sinners. So verses 35 to 36, under the heading, come and see, Jesus is the atonement for sinners. Second testimony, testimony number two, as found in verses 37 to 39, Jesus is the authority for sinners. Come and see, Jesus is the authority for sinners. And lastly, for today, testimony number three, and and really getting to the the end of the first half of this narrative, verse 40 to verse 42, we're going to see Jesus as the anointed one for sinners. So come and see, Jesus is the anointed one for sinners, as communicated in verses 40 to 42. So with this outline in mind, let's begin our deep dive into the text, and I pray God will move in power as we do so. Flip back to verses 35 to 36 with me again in John 1. Let's reread those verses together so we can hit the ground running and see Jesus as the atonement for sinners. Verse 35. John writes, again the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, at this point in the narrative, three days have elapsed from what we originally counted in verse 19. And uh, I'm not going to chase this rabbit with you this morning, but if you're ever interested in looking at key themes that recur throughout the Gospel of John, you're going to see over and over and over again on the third day or three days later. It's it's remarkable. John really loves to to, to put little vignettes throughout the course of his Gospel. If, If you're looking for a good Bible study this week, Go Google three days theme in the Gospel of John. I'm sure you'll find many verses and, and, and many good commentaries on what John's doing there. But that's a different sermon and a different study for another time. But we're at three days uh, past what we first encountered when this section began in verse 19. The events documented on day one span from verse 19 to verse 28. The events documented on day two span from verse 29 to verse 34. And the events that occur on day three will span from verse 35 to 42. And then when we get into the second half of this narrative, we're going to be on another day. So we're on the third day in this chunk of text that is, again, under the the broader umbrella of Jesus' preparation for ministry. So verse 19 to 51 of chapter 1, Jesus' preparation for ministry. We're at day three in that story. So we're continuing everything that we've been studying in the previous weeks one day at a time. Now, most New Testament historians note that these are the earliest events recorded in the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because according to what we find in John 2.11, the turning of water into wine is the first public miracle of Christ. So this is really front and center, the earliest recorded moments unfolding for us here in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, where are we at on a timeline? I'm not a big history guy. I'm not a big geography guy. But it's always important to know any good story. It has a broader context, right? You want to know when it happened, where it happened, who were the characters. Okay, so we've got an idea of the characters. We've got an idea of, of the timeline, right? Day three of four in this narrative. Now, where are we at on the scope of first century history? Well, we know from Luke 3.1 that the ministry of John the Baptist began in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which can objectively be traced back to the year 26 AD. So we can go back and look, not just biblical history, but secular history as well. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar is 26 AD. Okay, So we know for a fact 
that given that reality, and we also know given the fact that most scholars note that Jesus would have been born sometime between the year 4 and 6 B.C., having been 30 years old roughly when he began his earthly ministry, what we find occurring in this narrative, we're in year 1 of Jesus' ministry, roughly year 30 of his life. The year is roughly 26 or 27 A.D., John the Baptist has been on the scene anywhere between six months and a year up to this point. Publicly, that is, anyways. So, here's the scene. 26 or 27 A.D. Take, let's take a trip back in a time machine. Let's put ourselves there. 26 to 27 A.D. Jesus is just beginning his earthly ministry. John the Baptist has been around for no more than a year in the public light of Israel. We're at Bethany beyond the Jordan River, which is where John the Baptist has literally been baptizing Israelites and Gentiles in droves. This is the scene. And if I could make a Star Wars reference for you today. This was a long, long time ago in a place that is far, far away. Okay, That's why we've got to put ourselves in the shoes of those who would have originally experienced what we find reading here, or what we find as we read this passage. We're over 2,000 years removed, I guess a little less than 2,000 years removed from when these events happened. We're over 7,000 miles of terrain, but yet, what we find in this text, long time ago, far, far away, it's just as relevant to you and me today. They didn't have smartphones back then. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have cars. They didn't have TVs. They didn't have all the advancements of modern medicine or all the educational sophistication that is uh, accompanying modernity and post-modernity. But it's just as relevant for us today as it was for those who originally wrote or who originally read what John wrote in this gospel. Just as relevant because what we find in this story, in this narrative, it's real history, but it also gets to the heart of our salvation. Do you want to understand salvation? Go no further than this passage. It's all about how sinners receive spiritual sight, which is one of our greatest spiritual needs. And how do we see this? Well, notice verse 36 again. Verse 36, Behold the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist declares Jesus as the Lamb of God in verse 36, he's testifying that God has provided a once-for-all atonement for the sin of all who would ever come to saving faith. In effect, John the Baptist is saying that this man, he is the ultimate atonement for sin that we've all been waiting for. Now what does that mean? I would imagine at least one person in here is wondering at this point, okay, um, Jesus, Lamb of God, I know it got referenced a little bit by Alan last week, and I've heard that in church. We even have sung about it. But how does Jesus being the Lamb of God relate to atonement? How does Jesus being the Lamb of, uh, Lamb of God bring about salvation? And where does spiritual sight come into all of this? Let's get into some of those weeds together. I, I hope that I'll be able to kind of connect some dots for you as we work through the text. I mentioned a few minutes ago that anytime you analyze or study a story, you've got to know the context that undergirds that story, right? Well, who's the original audience here? It's Jews, right? Predominantly Jewish audience. We're in the Middle East, 2,000 years ago, 7,000 miles away from Edna, Texas. I looked it up on a map, so I know that it's, it's at least 7,000 miles away. When John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, Every single person around him would have understood exactly what he was saying. When we survey the scope of the Old Testament, which many of these Jews would have had uh, great familiarity with, of course, the Jewish religious leaders of that day would have had the whole Old Testament memorized. When John makes such a bold declaration of Jesus as the Lamb of God, we would have had, if we would have been in that scene with those people, all that knowledge of the Old Testament, there would have been wheels turning in everyone's mind. If you look throughout the Old Testament, lambs play a prominent role in how sinful man is able to both approach and interact with a holy God. I'm going to give you some scripture references quickly if you're taking notes. Uh, feel free to, to jot these down and look at it at greater length. You don't have time to exhaust these cross-references. I'd be more than happy to give them to you as well if you're not able to write them down quickly enough. But stay with me because this is Really interesting and important stuff from the Old Testament. First, in Genesis 4.4, 4, 
Many Old Testament scholars contend that Abel brought a lamb sacrifice before God and that it was accepted by God as a pleasing sacrifice. Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8. It was assumed by Isaac and Abraham that God would provide a lamb to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. Where's the lamb, Father? cried Isaac as Abraham was preparing the altar to slay his own son. He said, God will provide one. He'll give a lamb to be sacrificed in your place, my son. This observation demonstrates that the patriarchs of Israel, the forefathers of the faith, they had a working knowledge that salvation was ultimately accomplished through substitutionary sacrifice. Sacrifice as a substitute or in the place of another. In this instance, substitutionary sacrifice by a lamb. In Exodus 12, the nation of Israel was instructed to sacrifice a lamb without blemish and to put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house. Why? Because the Passover was taking place, right? You had the first Passover meal being celebrated and God sent the angel of death into the nation of Egypt and that angel of death would pass over all those whose homes were marked by the blood of the lamb. That lamb, as it were, it it propitiated or satisfied. It appeased the wrath of God over the nation of Israel. And he punished those wicked Egyptians, but he passed over his covenant people. A picture of what happens in the gospel. When we are washed in the blood of the lamb, God's justice, his wrath is satisfied in your place. And yet, those who are not washed in the blood... They bear God's wrath for their sins. Beautiful picture of the gospel and really on a cosmic level uh, in Exodus 12. How many of you guys have tried to read the book of Leviticus in your, uh, your, reading, uh, your, your Bible read-through plan and uh, you get about two chapters in and you're like, you know what, I'm going to the New Testament. You've been there before? I know I have, uh, especially as a new believer. Check out the book of Leviticus over and over and over again. The people of Israel... They're instructed to offer lambs as a sacrifice for their sins committed against God. Prior to making that sacrifice, another beautiful imagery of what happens in the gospel, particularly as it pertains to Christ's sacrifice. The Israelites, what they would do is they would take that lamb and they would lay their hands on the lamb, an innocent lamb, lay their hands on it. And when they would lay their hands on it, it would be symbolic of them transferring their guilt, their sin, to that innocent lamb that would be sacrificed in their place to appease God's wrath and God's justice. They would say, I'm guilty. Here is an innocent one. God's instructed me to make this sacrifice. And I trust that as I place my hands on this lamb, and as I slaughter that lamb, and as that blood covers the altar, God's just vengeance for my sin is fully and totally satisfied through the sacrifice of another. Powerful picture of substitutionary atonement. Isaiah 53, particularly in verses 7 and 10. It's prophesied in that text, the suffering servant. A a passage that Jews don't even recognize as part of the Old Testament because it's impossible to read that chapter and not see Jesus. A prophecy given 700 years or so before Christ comes on the scene. You can't read that chapter of Isaiah and not see Jesus Christ. And in that text, Isaiah 53, 7 and 10, it's prophesied that God's Messiah, He would be that suffering servant depicted in Isaiah 53. He would be offered as a sacrifice for the sin of all of His people. He would be, in the words of Isaiah, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He would be rendered, in the words of Isaiah, as a guilt offering on behalf of all those who He represented. From Genesis throughout the Old Testament. Again, leading to this moment in the narrative in John's Gospel. Lambs. Substitutionary sacrifice for sin. These were all embedded into the minds and into the hearts of Old Covenant Israelites. And then when we reach the New Testament. Looking back, they looked ahead to Christ to come. We look back to the Christ who has come and accomplished everything that the Father sent Him into the world to do. Flip over to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 21. I love how connected and interwoven the Bible is. It always confirms itself. What was prophesied in the old is always fulfilled in the new. 
1 Peter 1, 18-21. Notice how the Apostle Peter puts this. In light of what John the Baptist said, you want to see what the Lamb of God accomplished? You want to see why this is significant? You want to see how this pertains to salvation? Peter says, let me show you how. Let me tell you how. Verse 18 and following, he says, You, by the way, he's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience here. Okay? So, again, for us here, I trust that probably everybody in here isn't Jewish. There may be one or two, maybe, if we're lucky. But given our audience, I think we're probably all Gentile. And we're in Edna, Texas in 2022. But Peter's writing to Gentiles. And he's applying an Old Covenant, Old Testament truth that would have been familiar throughout Israel. And he's applying it to those who were outside the commonwealth. Those who were strangers and sojourners and foreigners to the covenant promises in the Old Testament. He's saying, this is for you as well. This is for you Gentiles in the first century. If you're here today, this is for you, Edna, Texas resident, 2022. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the one and only substitute for sin. This is for you. Listen to what Peter writes. You, he says, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You weren't redeemed from your sin by physical or temporal matters. Money can't buy your way into heaven, Peter says. But, contrast, here's how you were redeemed, he says. You were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. How can a spiritually dead sinner be made spiritually alive? How can a spiritually blind sinner by nature be granted spiritual sight? Only by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. It's only through trusting in the substitutionary atoning sacrifice made by the Lord Jesus Christ that any sinner can be reconciled to their holy creator. There is no other mediator between God and man. There is no other name given under heaven whereby man can be saved. It is only and entirely and exclusively through the blood of the Lamb of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that sinners like you and I, blind as we may be by nature, can be granted spiritual sight. Come and see today, my friends. Jesus is the atonement for sinners. Well, the narrative continues on. If that wasn't enough, we find a second testimony in verses 37 to 39, which demonstrates how Jesus freely offers spiritual sight to all those who commit to following after him. And I believe it's a necessary entailment or a necessary consequence of what we just considered. If, if sinners come to genuinely believe that Jesus is the atonement for sinners, then this first-hand testimony is likewise going to be embraced by believers. If you believe Jesus is the atonement for sinners, as we saw from verse 35 and 36, what we find in verses 37 to 39, that's also going to be believed. If you believe the first, you will believe the second. They're two sides of the same coin. What is that second testimony? What's verses 37 to 39 saying? Notice from those verses, come and see. Jesus is the authority for sinners. Jesus is the authority for sinners. Notice those verses again with me in your Bibles. Verse 37 and following. The two disciples heard John the Baptist speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. What's the heart of what John's saying there? How is this testifying to Jesus as the authority for sinners? Let me give you a one-sentence summary. True saving faith in Jesus Christ surrenders to Him as Lord. You can't just have... If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you can't only be content with Jesus as a Savior. It's not enough to simply acknowledge Jesus as a Savior. You must likewise acknowledge Him as your Lord. True saving faith in Jesus Christ surrenders to Him as 
Lord. And during the second half of the 20th century, the Western church, particularly in America, we had a rise of a movement, many of you here may be familiar with it, known as carnal Christianity. You ever heard of that term before? Show of hands. Carnal Christianity, maybe easy believism or the technical theological term, antinomianism, anti-law. A trend that really came on the scene with the rise of the revivalist movement throughout the 20th century. And what was at the, what was at the heart of this movement? What was this movement all about? Well, carnal Christianity, easy believism, antinomianism, whatever you want to call it, this movement essentially taught that if you want to be saved, if you want to go to heaven, you need only walk an aisle, sign a card, say the sinner's prayer, make a decision. That's all you got to do. Does it matter? If you live like the devil for 60 years after making that decision. It doesn't matter if you ever repent from your sin. It doesn't matter if you ever go to church. You made that decision. You bought your fire's insurance. You are set for eternity. No lordship in that economy. And according to leaders of this movement, there were ultimately two categories of Christians. Here's how they made sense of this issue. They would say, okay, two categories of Christians. Category number one. These are your carnal Christians. Okay? These, these are the ones who are spiritual infants. And for those who fall into this category, according to proponents of this movement, they, they, they may never perform a single good work. They may just be in a state of spiritual infancy for their entire Christian life. They may never repent from sin. They may never bear fruit. They'll just go throughout their whole life living like the world. But hey, Jesus saved them. They made a decision. Jesus isn't on the throne of their life, but hey, he's still their savior. Category number one for those in this line of thinking. Second category, of course, you've got to have a second category in this if you just read the Bible on its own terms. Category number two, these proponents said you have your spiritual mature Christians. These are the ones who really get it. These are the ones who really take their faith seriously. Some of them are a little bit odd, they're a little bit out there, they're a little bit over the top. They're really crazy about that Jesus stuff. They love the Bible, and they actually believe it so much that they do what it says. These Christians, they repent from sin, they model good works, they give to the church, they serve in the church, they share the gospel with other people. Man, they really are firing on all cylinders in their Christian life. And how was this Responded to, do you think, as this movement began to pick up steam? Well, you get to the later half of the 20th century, and over and over and over again, conservative and Bible-believing Christians said, no, this is unbiblical. There is no such thing as Christians who are carnal. Though we do struggle with sin, though we do fall short of the glory of God all the days of our life, true Christians are not content to be left in their sins And to only acknowledge Jesus as a savior to get fire insurance so they can go to heaven and not put him on display and glorify him in their life as long as he gives them breath to do so. True Christians, my friends, not Dewey talking, not John MacArthur or or any leader that you may respect and be familiar with. Uh, Al Mohler, we're studying the Baptist faith in Message Sunday School. Those men don't say this. This is what God's word says. Jesus is the authority for all sinners who call upon his name in faith. Give me, give me, give me, let me give you a few uh, scriptures here. Luke 4, or excuse me, Luke 6, 46 rather. This is a rhetorical question from Jesus. How can one call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? You know, you honor me with your lips, but your heart and your life is far from me. It doesn't reflect your profession of faith. Paul echoes the same thing. Romans 14, verses 7 and 9. If this isn't lordship salvation, I don't know what is. Verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Let me ask you, as, a, as just a general appeal, I'm, I'm not trying to make anybody feel like I'm 
this guy who has his life figured out and never sins. I'm just in need of God's grace as any other person on the face of this earth. But let me ask you today, in the quiet of your own heart, whether you're here today present or you're listening online, whatever the case may be, whoever hears my words at this very moment, is Jesus your Lord? I'm not asking if you got baptized or if you made a profession of faith at youth camp or you wrote on a car that you were going to accept Jesus into your heart or that you said the sinner's prayer. I'm asking you if you look at your life before a holy God and His Word as your ultimate standard, does it show not perfection, but is the trajectory of your life reflecting a submission to His Lordship? And my friends, if that's not the case, you need to do some business with God. Because if you're, if you're in Christ, if, if Christ shed His blood for you, He is your Lord. He's not just your Savior. And my friends, we've got to take this message to a world. We talked about this in Sunday school. How many people who identify as Christians... They look no different than the world. They talk no differently from the world. Their music they listen to, the TV they watch, the way they speak, their desires, their motives, it's all the same as the rest of the world. We've got to declare to all people, not just that Jesus is the Savior. He is. Praise the Lord. Amen. We preach that. He's also Lord of heaven and earth. And He's your authority. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess such. Do so willingly now and not in terror on that day when he returns. Notice also what is evidence from this text regarding the lordship of Christ. In verses 37 and 39, how does the lordship of Christ, how does the authority of Christ impact a sinner? Well, one follows him. That's, that's really what it's about. I, I asked you that question. Is Jesus your Lord? How do I know, Dewey? You know, I mean, yeah, obedience, great, but do you follow Him? Are you willing to go where He says you should go? Are you willing to pursue what He puts on your heart to pursue? Are you willing to think about the world as He asks you and instructs you to think in His Word? Do you follow Him? Look at what happened in these texts. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. And these two men, what do they do? They would have loved John the Baptist. He was their mentor. He was their spiritual mentor and authority. And, he's, and, and he says, behold the Lamb of God. You know what these men do? They see it. Spiritual sight granted by the grace of God. And then they follow him. They follow Jesus. And as a result of these men choosing to follow Jesus, his authority becomes their ultimate standard of governing their lifestyle and their thought process. These men recognized that Jesus was so worthy of their devotion. They were willing to literally drop everything in their life. And they were willing to relocate themselves so they could be wholeheartedly committed to Jesus. Sometimes that's what happens in the Christian life. Sometimes God calls you to go to places you would have never gone to. You would have never dreamed that you would be in that situation. Some people grow up having a dream. I'm going to do this. I'm going to marry this kind of a person. I'm going to have this career. I'm going to live here. I'm going to be close to family all my life. And then God gets a hold of them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And He gives them new affections and a new standard for governing their life. And He gives them new desires. And all of a sudden, everything they believed in and everything they were, their whole life up to that point, it's changed in an instant. And as they try to suppress it, as they grow uncomfortable with it, they can't get away from it. And they must follow Christ. And that's what we see here from these disciples. They loved John the Baptist. They had family probably in the area. They said, honey, if they were married, kids, I love you. And I will always provide for you. I will always be here for you. John the Baptist, we will always love you. But we must follow Christ. He's the Lamb of God. He's the atonement for sinners, and He's the authority for sinners. He is everything to me. And if you're a Christian, He will be everything to you. Do we fall short? Yes. Do we struggle with the lust of the flesh, the, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes? Do we struggle with things in this life? Yes, these same men would abandon Christ in His greatest hour of need. But my friends... When you are in Christ, He is your authority. 
And the pattern of your life will be one of a willingness to follow Him wherever He calls you to go. And to think however He calls you to think. And to repent and obey Him as He's instructed you to do so in His Word. So Christ changes your thought process. He changes your lifestyle. He changes your affections. Jesus is the authority for sinners. Come and see today, my friends. Come and see. This is precisely what we see before us in verses 37 to 39. And that brings us to the third first-hand testimony we find in this text today. We've, we've seen from verses 35 to 36 that Jesus is the atonement for sinners. We've observed from verses 37 to 39 that Jesus is the authority for sinners. And as we prepare to draw our study to a conclusion, third first-hand testimony of Jesus giving spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind, Jesus is the anointed one for sinners. That might sound strange. I'll break down what I mean by anointed one in just a few moments. But in the meantime, let's look at the text together. Verses 40 to 42. Jesus is the anointed one for sinners. John writes, One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now in this text, there are two primary observations that I want us to take away from these verses that I believe really suit well with our heading, Jesus as the anointed one for sinners. The first one's quite obvious. It, it, it really gets to the heart of what it means for Jesus to be the anointed one. I, uh, observation number one, the identification of Jesus as Christ, Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the anointed one. What is, how does all this work and fit together? Well, I love to tell stories from uh, just, just my, my spiritual pilgrimage and, and my growth and the grace and knowledge of Christ. Some of you may be shocked to hear this. Uh, and, and then as I tell you this story, remember, I didn't grow up in church. But some of you may be shocked to hear this. It was not until I was 20 years old, I was a student at the Master's University, enrolled in the Bible program, okay? This is a school that's well known for its Bible program. I'm preparing to go into ministry. And I don't know, I was probably first month or so being there. And, and I, I was told in class, the professor, it was an Old Testament class, we were talking about the Messiah, and they made the comment, Christ isn't actually Jesus' last name. I'm 20 years old, you know, didn't really grow up in church a whole lot growing up, didn't have much Bible knowledge. I was starting to study scripture seriously, but it was like the most earth-shattering revelation ever. I always thought Christ was Jesus' last name. You mean it's not his last name? No, it's not. Um... Christ isn't actually a name at all. It's a title. As we read from verse 41, the word Messiah, it comes from a Hebrew word that's translated into Greek, Christos, which is where we get the English word Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're just saying Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. And what does that term actually mean? It means anointed one. When you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus the anointed one. Anointed one of who? Anointed one of God. Jesus is the anointed one of God. That's what we see being testified to. That's what we see bearing witness to here in our passage. Now, how does the scripture teach Jesus as the anointed one? How is Jesus portrayed in this way throughout God's word? Well, throughout the Old Testament... You want to understand what it meant to be the Messiah? I'll give you a, I mean, this doesn't get into all the weeds, but this is a good, hopefully, 30,000-foot flyover here. and Maybe you can walk out of here with, with something new that you've learned. Throughout the Old Testament, we find there are three special office, uh, offices where people would be anointed by God for fulfilling a role in Old Covenant Israel. Three offices where God would anoint somebody, typically by the Holy Spirit, but sometimes there would be a leader in Israel that would anoint this person for their role as well. Those three offices in the Old Testament were prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. The three top special offices in Israel where God would set people aside and it would be anointed for a, a particular purpose and a particular task. Now, if you look throughout the Old Testament, it is prophesied 
That there would be a time in which one would come, he would come to Israel, and he would fulfill each of those roles in his one person. So typically you'd have three people at one time, or if, if priest, you'd have multiple priests, but you would have three offices and you wouldn't have any overlap between them. Look out throughout the old Old Testament. Very little, if any, overlap between each of those three offices. And yet, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied. One's coming. He's going to fulfill each of those offices in his person. He will be the Messiah. And I was thinking, okay, you know, how do I connect these dots and make it understandable for you all to take home? I think the most clear instance of this is found in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. And again, I mentioned earlier, this was written probably in the early 700s, roughly 700 years before Christ came. But in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, we find that the Messiah is coming, the one who is anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. He is coming. He's coming to the nation of Israel. And this Messiah... He will be the one to bring spiritual deliverance to needy and perishing sinners. And we find this to be fulfilled in the New Testament. So I gave you the Old Testament text, Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. If you go to Luke 4, verses 16 to 21, we find that Jesus intentionally applies this prophecy to himself. That prophecy from Isaiah 61. Jesus says, that prophecy... It is all about me. I'm the one who Israel's been waiting for to be the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. I'm the one you have been waiting for. Flip over with me to Luke 4, 16 to 21. I want you to see this from the text. So you have the Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3 passage. You can read that. It's, it's cited verbatim here or, or may not be exactly verbatim, but it's it's as close to being verbatim as you can get in a New Testament citation. And before we read this text, I just want to say this as an aside as well while we're on uh, this subject. Anytime you're looking at how, how you should understand Old Testament prophecy, always start with the New Testament. The New Testament, typically, if they apply or if they interpret a passage in the Old Testament, what you're getting, my friends, is you're not getting some random commentator's perspective You're getting God, the Holy Spirit, inspired commentary and perspective on the significance of that Old Testament prophecy. So here, you you, you don't only get Luke writing under the Holy Spirit in light of this prophecy in Isaiah. You're getting Jesus Christ himself telling you and telling me and telling all who would ever read the Gospel of Luke. Hey, that prophecy about the Messiah, Isaiah 61, look no further, it's me. I am him. Let's read the text together. Isaiah, or excuse me, Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. The Isaiah 61 passage, it's included in verses 18 to 19. So um, read with me, if you will. If you've got your Bible open to that passage, I hope this will be clarified for you. Verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And here's the citation from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the people in the synagogue were intently directed at him. And Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let me just say this. If Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, he deserved to be put to death. That's blasphemy for anyone to just say that on a whim. That's what's at stake with this profession. Jesus was deserving to be put to death. And he's the worst person to ever live if he is not telling the truth. Because he's deceived billions if he's not. That's what's at stake with passages like this. Let that sink into your soul. Now when we consider the intersection of Isaiah 61 and its fulfillment in Luke 4, we can ultimately come to the following conclusions. Where's prophet, priest, and king in all this? Jesus is the true prophet of Israel in that he is sent to proclaim the truth of God. The the, the truth that the God who saves... 
He can be accessed through him. You can have access to the God who saves through faith in Jesus. He's the true prophet. He proclaims the truth of God and the truth of salvation and that he and he alone is the one by whom and through whom and to whom anyone can be redeemed. Jesus is the true priest of Israel. How is he the true priest? Well, he sets free those who are spiritually oppressed through his substitutionary atoning sacrifice on the cross made on behalf of all believing sinners. Jesus' prophet, he proclaims the truth of God. Jesus' priest, he is the sacrifice of God. Just as the priests would go and they would make those sacrifices, Jesus makes the ultimate sacrifice and he himself is that sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And lastly... Jesus is the true King of Israel in that the Spirit of God anoints Him, rests upon Him, and empowers Him for ministry throughout the totality of His messianic work from the time of its beginning at His baptism all the way through to His death on the cross. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. David, Saul, Solomon, anointed by God the Holy Spirit, King over the Israel theocracy, Jesus, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Spirit abides and remains on Him and empowers Him and equips Him to fulfill every task that He would ever be entrusted with by the Father. My friends, by virtue of being Israel's Messiah, Jesus is the true prophet. Jesus is the perfect priest. Jesus is the one and greatest King to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Do you know Him today? Do you know him today? That's just precisely how the original audience would have understood what Jesus was saying in Luke 4 and in John 1, 41. When when Andrew tells Simon Peter, we have found the Messiah. He was so overwhelmed with excitement. We talked about this today in Sunday school, about how there needs to be a joy about the Christian faith. Believers should be just overwhelmed with joy and excitement and happiness when they consider the excellencies of Christ, the precious truth contained in Scripture, and how it all applies to them. And this is what we see spilling over with these two men who heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God. And now they followed Christ, and they've been granted spiritual sight. And now Andrew's going to his own brother, and he's saying... We found him. He's here. Peter, we have found the Messiah. 700 years since that Isaiah 61 prophecy and all the other places in the Old Testament that prophesy of, of one who would be prophet, priest, and king in his person. He is here. And my friends, this is the effect of spiritual sight. When you receive spiritual sight, verses 40 to 42, by the way, this is the second observation. Verses 40 to 42, note the effect of spiritual sight. How how should spiritual sight be manifested in a believer's life? What is a necessary evidence that one has spiritual sight? You will delight in the things of God. You will desire to have the greatest, most exalted view of God because you realize that it is in Him and Him alone in which you can be satisfied. No amount of money, sex, fame, success, influence, nothing in this life will fulfill you to the nth degree that Jesus and Jesus alone can and does for those who know Him. When you're on your deathbed, you're not going to care about how much money you had. You're not going to care about how many friends you had or social media followers you had. You're not going to care about whether you were the CEO of your company. Because death is the great equalizer. And in that moment, all that will matter is what you've done with Christ. And your excitement and your joy in the Christian life, my friends, that will sustain you through highs and lows. Will you feel depressed at times? Certainly, you're going to wrestle with that. Are you going to feel downtrodden at times? Absolutely. We're fleshly. We're sinful. Scripture is very clear. Go read Romans 7. 14 through the end of the chapter. If the Apostle Paul had struggles, you and I are going to have struggles. If the greatest Christian who ever lived struggled with things, by golly, we're going to struggle with some things. But let me tell you this on the authority of God's Word. If you have spiritual sight, 
If God the Holy Spirit dwells within you, if you have come to taste and see that the Lord is good, you will have joy and expressible, and God by His grace will sustain you and preserve you through whatever He brings to pass in your life. Will it be hard at times? Yes. But He will be there for you, and He will never leave you nor forsake you. And you can rest there. And I pray that every person here today who knows Jesus can attest to this. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the atonement for your sin. Jesus is Lord. He's not just Savior. He's your authority. Jesus is the giver of spiritual sight. Jesus, my friends, He is the one who is the anointed one of God who came into this world, born of a virgin, took on flesh, lived a perfect life without sin, gave Himself up, He was anointed by the Holy Spirit in power from on high at every moment in that messianic work. And right now, after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, having appeared before more than 500 witnesses, he ascended into heaven. And right now, just as he's been doing for the past 2,000 years, he is making intercession for you and for me at the Father's right hand. He will give you every grace you need to endure whatever he puts into your life. When times get tough, this joy, this excitement, this happiness about Christianity, when times get tough, God will kindle that in you. He will use believers to help that. He will use God's Word to help that take place. He will use songs that we sing to help that take place. He will use your prayer life to help that take place. Rest assured that if you've been granted the gift of spiritual sight, if you have come to see that Jesus is the anointed one for sinners... You will endure to the end, and God will perfect the work that he has begun in you until the day of Christ Jesus. I hope that is a blessing and an encouragement to you. It certainly was for me as I considered this text. And I can only imagine how Andrew and Simon Peter and the other disciple, can you imagine how they felt in that moment? He's here. It's been 700 years, and he's here. He's the anointed one for sinners. Well, we uh, now come to the end of today's sermon. I am going to pray, of course, as usual. Joanne is going to come up and uh, lead us in a closing song. If anything that has been discussed today, if it was unclear, maybe you're here today and and you've got a need that you need prayer for. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. And and, and maybe for a while you've you've really been reflecting on spiritual truth and and the reality of your standing before a holy God. I don't know where every person's at spiritually, but I can say this. If you have a spiritual need, you need encouragement, prayer, counsel, you come find one of the men of the church after we close our service out. Um, I'll be available. Alan, of course, Melvin, Gordon will be available. You come. Let us minister to you. I pray that Lifeway Baptist Church continues to flourish and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me close in prayer, and then Joanna will come up and lead us in a closing song. Our Father in heaven, I, Father, I trust that for all of us who are in Christ, I, I pray and I trust, Lord, that the cry of our heart is to further behold the fullness of your glory. Lord, just as Moses desired to see your glory in the wilderness thousands of years ago, Father, may we long for your glory. May we long for your holy presence All the days of our life, knowing that someday, either at the return of Christ or at the time of our earthly death, we will enter into your presence and we'll be satisfied. All these truths that we've considered today about Christ being the atonement for sinners, Christ being the authority for sinners, Christ being the anointed one for sinners. Lord, all that that we've we've seen from your word, we're going to see it with, with our eyes, Lord, and we long for that day. And Father, I pray that we would never trivialize or, or just assume that, that our experience of, of being transferred from spiritually blind to spiritually seen, Lord, would we never trivialize or just think that it's ordinary or that, that everybody should just experience that on a whim? Lord, help us not to normalize these realities that we've considered today. Father, help us to be excited about these realities. Help us to have joy. Like, like Andrew did. Father, we are so spoiled. We are so blessed. We live in a day where we can get on the internet and we can find so much truth and so much, so much good teaching. And 
We have a means of transportation. We can go to conferences. We can go to each other's house with ease. We can come up here to this beautiful facility of Lifeway Baptist Church. God, help us to not grow entitled or apathetic to anything that we're learning about from Scripture. Always, Father, kindle afresh the gift of grace that you have bestowed unto us by your Holy Spirit. Make us more like Jesus and by your Holy Spirit, continually stir our affections for him so that we might be bold and faithful and gracious ambassadors for your kingdom outside of these walls. And Father, I pray for anybody here today who doesn't know you. Perhaps there is one or or more who, Lord, they've gone up to this point in their life and they've either played the game of, of religion or Father, they, they thought they've been a Christian or, or maybe they just hearing this for the first time, really hearing it clearly for the first time, wherever that person is or those people are, if they be here today, I pray, Father, that they would see your excellency, your love, your mercy, your provision of everything that sinners could ever need, that in Christ, he will give them spiritual sight. He will give them a new heart transform them into a new creature and that your grace, Father, is greater than their sin. Oh God, draw them to yourself if it be thy will. And I pray that this church would never compromise the truth of your word, that it would always be a bastion of light here in Edna, Texas and in Jackson County. Continue to do a mighty work through this people who desire for nothing else than for you to be glorified. We love you, God. We thank you for this time of worship. I pray it was refreshing for all people here. I pray you give us safe travels as we head home and as we prepare for Celebrate Recovery tonight. God, I do ask and pray that you would begin working on the hearts of all those who will be present. Lord, that that we would actually do business with you as we talk with one another and as we meditate on your word. So God, we commit all this to you in prayer and we ask that that as we sing this final song that, Lord, that you would be magnified and that you would carry us out into this new week with hearts ablaze for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.